This fall we are looking at the letter of Paul to the Galatians, and we are up to the end of chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Galatians 2, 15 to 21. Just a reminder of where we've been in Galatians. Galatia, a region in Central Asia Minor. Paul had gone into that region, he had preached the gospel, and then some others had gone in after him and were distorting the gospel. So Paul writes this very strident letter to the Galatians, and he insists that there is only one gospel, that he got that gospel directly from Jesus Christ, and that the apostles in Jerusalem recognize that one gospel that Paul was preaching. That brings us up to where we are here. And at the end of last week, we saw a titanic clash between Paul and Peter, where Peter's actions were were giving the impression that in order to be a first-class Christian, you had to be a Jew. And we pick this up in chapter 2, verse 15. Galatians 2, 15 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There are two basic questions about God that I think most humans ask at some point in their lives. And the first question is, the most basic does he exist? And if we conclude that he doesn't exist, then we have many other questions that we need to ask. We won't get into those today, but why is there something instead of nothing? Is there any purpose? Why am I here? There are lots of other questions that if we say there is no God, that that we have difficulty, or I would say would be impossible to answer. But if we conclude that God does exist, then probably in our concept of this God who does exist, we assume that God is in the right, that He does what is right, that He is right. Um, Now, in addition to that, we have an intuition. I think all human beings have an intuition, and that is that there's something wrong with the world. Would you agree with me that there's something wrong with the world? And, and, And I would think that all across the globe, all humans have this idea that that something is not right with the world. And we're very quick to give our opinions about what isn't right with the world. Now, we also have this sneaking suspicion that there's something that's not right with me. Uh, But that's something we try to suppress, we try to ignore, 
And we tend to defend ourselves when that sneaking suspicion starts rising up in our minds that there's something not right with me. However, if we let, uh, let that idea seep in some, then we get to the second question about God. If we believe that God exists and that He is right, that He is in the right, and He does what's right, and then we also exist, and we're not right, then we have the second question. The second question is, how can we be right with God? If He is in the right, and we are not in the right, there's a problem there. And how is it that we can be in a a proper, a, a right relationship with God? Now, in Scripture, this question is the question of what's called justification. Justification. And we'll see this word here. We'll see it in the verb form, uh, justify. Now, unfortunately, in English, our words muddle the question a little bit. Because when we think of justice, we generally think of something like fairness, don't we? Um, But really the concept here is more like rightness, rightness. And we find that in our word righteousness, a right situation, a rightness. So what is the question of justification? The question of justification is how can we be in a right relationship with God? How can we be rightly related to Him? That's righteousness. That is to be justified or rightified, if we can make up a word. Now, this word, justify, is a legal word, and actually we're not so unfamiliar with the idea. Uh, maybe we've been in a court case, or if li- at least we've seen court cases on TV, or we've seen them in movies. And at the end of the court case, in our legal system here in the West, the judge will often bang the gavel, and he will say, I find you, and he will say one of two things. What will he say? I find you guilty? Or I find you not guilty. Two options. And if he finds you guilty, you're guilty. Why? Because he declared you to be guilty. And you may say, I didn't do it, but you are guilty before the law. You are not in a right situation before the law. You have been declared to be in a wrong situation before the law. But if he acquits you, that is, if he declares you not guilty, he is declaring you right. He is declaring that you are in a right relationship to the law. So that's the question here. And that's really the heart of this letter. And if you really want to get a summary of what Galatians is all about, you can read over and over verses 15 and 16. This is really the heart of Galatians. Because what Paul is saying here is how we stand before God. How we can be in a right relationship with God. And what he says is, he may still be talking to Peter. At the end of verse 14, he is still rebuking Peter. And he may be saying to Peter, when he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, he may still be talking to Peter. The way the quotation marks are given in this translation, it ends with verse 14, but it may continue. But however that may be, he's speaking about Jewish people. And he's saying, we are Jews by birth and not, and maybe we should put this in parentheses because this is, or in in quotation marks, because this was the attitude of the Jews. We are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners like the rest of the world. We are Jews. But now look what he does with this statement. You might think this is a proud statement, but he actually uses this 
to, to explain how justification works. He says, we are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners like those people out there. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says this three times in different ways. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in these two verses, he says it three, way, three different ways, positively and negatively. He says the only way to be justified is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law, which means obedience to the law. Now, what's this Jew-Gentile thing? What's going on there? What he's using is what's called an a fortiori argument. He's presenting the stronger case, and then he's saying, wrapped up in the stronger case is the weaker case. And the, the idea is this. We're Jews. We're people of the book. We're people of the law. Our whole identity is about trying to obey the law. And if we, who are all about the law, if we Jews cannot be justified before God by obeying the law, then how much less can Gentiles be justified before God by obeying the law? And if we, if we Jews, who are all about keeping the law, if we can be justified only through faith in Jesus Christ, how much more obvious is it that Gentiles who have no knowledge of the law, the written law, how much more obvious is it that they can be justified before God only through faith in Jesus Christ? It's something like this. If uh, I were to say an argument like this, if dark-skinned people should protect themselves from the sun... How much more obvious is it that light-skinned people should protect themselves from the sun? That's the sort of argument. If Jews need to be justified before God, not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, how much more obvious is it that Gentiles can be justified before God only through faith in Jesus Christ and not by observing the law? Why is this so important in this context here in Galatians? Because in Galatia, these were not Jews. These were Gentiles. And they had trusted in Jesus Christ to be justified before God. But somebody had come in and said, No, you Gentiles, in order to be real Christians, you need to start obeying some of these Jewish laws. You need to be circumcised. You need to watch the calendar. You need to keep this this certain kosher diet. And Paul is saying, What? We Jews can't fulfill the law and be justified that way. So how much less can you Gentiles do that? He's saying, look at us as an example. And if we can't do it, then much less can you do it. And if Christ can save us, then Christ can save you as well. Now, what Paul does here is he extends. He extends what was going on in Galatia to make it general. In Galatia, they were focusing on things like circumcision and uh, diet and calendar. They were focusing on ceremonial parts of the law. But he says the principle is the same regarding the moral law of God as well, leaving aside the, the ceremonial aspects of it. Paul is saying that the whole, the whole law, the whole law 
uh, none, no aspect of the law can function in order to make us right with God. Paul extends this. You'll find throughout Paul different expressions, by the way. Sometimes he says, the law cannot save us. Sometimes he says, the works of the law cannot save us. And sometimes he simply says, works. And he doesn't refer to the law. Like in Ephesians 2, he says, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one can boast. So there he doesn't even mention the law. So he generalizes here because the principle is the same. If it, Whatever the law might be, whatever the requirement might be, we cannot be justified in that way. The only way is to be is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is not the moral law of God. That's not where the problem is. The moral law of God is good. And it is for our good. And it describes the good works that we should do. So the problem is not the law. The problem is that we can't keep it. And so, that's why it can never function as a ladder to win our way up to God. So far, so good. Some people hearing that have said, great, I never liked the law that much anyway, and so I'm so glad to be rid of it, and now I can just do whatever I want. And so, this seems like a dangerous sort of idea, doesn't it? And that may be what was going on in Galatia. They were saying, oh no, this, this free justification through faith in Christ is just too dangerous. Let's, let's give you some, some things to do to keep you on your toes so that you can work your way to God. So some have concluded this. This idea of justification means that we don't have to worry about the law and we can live however we like. Paul answered that objection in Romans chapter 6 at length. Some other day, Lord willing, we will go look at Romans chapter 6. But here he answers it briefly in verses 17 and 18. Unfortunately, these are verses that are difficult to interpret because I think it's something like, I don't know that I've ever watched Jeopardy, but um, in Jeopardy, am I right in saying that they give you the answer and you have to come up with a question? Okay, that's sort of how it is here. Um, We get the answer but we don't know exactly what the question was. But we can put it together and we can realize that some people were objecting to this idea of justification by faith alone by saying, well, if that's the case, then Jesus is promoting sin. Now, we don't exactly know what mechanism they were thinking about. We don't know exactly how they were accusing Jesus of promoting sin if justification is by faith in Christ alone. There are two possibilities. One is that if Jews cannot be saved by the law, and Jews are just like those Gentile sinners, then this teaching makes more people sinners. Because the Jews were the good people, and the Gentiles were the bad people, but now justification says, guess what? Everybody's the bad people. And so what's that done? It's, it's increased the number of sinners in the world. And so that could be one idea. Another idea, which may be more, more on point, is it could be saying that after being justified by faith alone, Christians still sin. Look at 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So he could be saying, okay, we're justified by faith in Christ, but then we're still sinners, does that mean that Christ is promoting sin? And um, in either case, in either interpretation, 
Christ is not the one who promotes sin. He's the one who exposes sin. He's the one who forgives sin. But He's not the one who promotes it. And then, verse 18 is also difficult. Because Paul says here, But if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, what exactly is he, has he torn down and is he now rebuilding? I think the best interpretation is that old system that he used to rely on. Because he used to rely on what we call a legalistic system, a system of law-keeping in order to gain God's favor. And Paul says, if I rebuild that legalistic system, if I walk away from God's free grace and walk away from justification, and I rebuild, I rebuild uh, this legalistic system, all I do is show myself to be a transgressor. This is an own goal in soccer. Um, this, is, this is a point against myself, because if all I do is I rebuild a legalistic system, that legalistic system just shows me up to be a transgressor. It doesn't help me. All it does is show what I'm really like, and so that's not going to work for me or anyone else. Now, even though there's some difficulty with these two verses, the real strong answer to this idea of, of, uh, of Christ promoting sin is in what comes in 19, 20, and 21. And that is a lifestyle. A changed life. Um, the new way of life. And that's what's described in these verses. Paul used a familiar theme here in verse 19 and 20. And that's the theme of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Uh, that's a very familiar theme in Christianity. Why? Because Christ died and Christ rose. And what he's saying here is that he identified with that death and with that resurrection. That his life was tied up with Christ in Christ's death and in Christ's resurrection. So much so that Paul, being identified with Christ, when Christ died, Paul experienced a death. And when Christ was raised from the dead, Paul experienced a resurrection from the dead. Let's, let's see how he describes this. He says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's the death and there's the resurrection. What put Paul to death here, he says? The law put him to death. How does the law put him to death? Well, the law shows him up to be a sinner. Paul was, was doing well. He says elsewhere, he says, I was doing great. I thought I was really wonderful. I was fine. And then the law came in and I died because it showed me to be a transgressor, to be a sinner. So he says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Then he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So the, the, the identification here is with Christ in His crucifixion, with Christ in His resurrection. And he says, now, in this new life that I live, the animating power of this new life is Jesus Christ Himself. Verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Christ's life pulses through my life. 
Christ is the, the power of this new life. And he says, the instrument of this new life is faith in Jesus Christ. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And the reason for faith in Christ is because of His sacrificial love. And if you hear nothing else today, hear the end of verse 20. He says, the life I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is, this is the basic statement of faith of all who are believers in Jesus Christ. If you want to boil uh, the, the, the confession of, of Christ down to one simple statement, it could, it could be this. What do you believe, Christian? Christ loved me and He gave Himself for me. That's a basic confession of faith of a Christian. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a Christian. To believe that that God loves us so much that He gave His Son. And that that Son gave Himself for us. That is, for our sins. Why? So that we might have a right relationship with God. Do you remember that, that problem with which we began? God is in the right and we are not. There's a problem there. There's a barrier there. And now we find that Christ gave Himself for our sins to take away that barrier and give us that right relationship with God. Now let's put this all together. The only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the only way to live a godly life is through faith in Jesus Christ. Did you see that? In in verses 15 and 16, he says, we are justified by faith. In verses 19 and 20, he says, we live by faith. So, we establish this right relationship with God through faith. We live through faith. So, it's faith at the beginning, and it's faith all the way through. We're made right by faith. We walk by faith. We're justified by faith. We live by faith. We begin the Christian life by faith. We continue the Christian life by faith. Now, the the bottom line is in the final verse. And this really puts the contrast here in verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died for no purpose. Now think about that. If there were a set of requirements that we could obey and establish a right relationship with God, then why did Christ come? What reason did He die? Why did He live? Why did He die? Why did He rise from the dead? The answer, it's, it's senseless. It's, it's unnecessary. It's, it's without purpose. It's without cause. If there's some way that, that we ourselves can establish that relationship. But, if we cannot establish that relationship on our own, then we see, we understand, it falls together, it makes sense why Christ came. Because He is the one that can, through His death, through His resurrection, make us right with God. So, here are the options. You can trust in your own works before God. You can go it on your own. You can try to stand on your your own two feet before God, if you dare. Or you can trust in Christ alone and in what He has done in dying and rising again. But please don't do what the Galatians were doing. 
the Galatians were trying to mix these two trusts. They were saying, well, I, I trust in Christ, but I also want to add my own part. And if you do that, what are you doing? You're nullifying the grace of God. You are mixing oil and water. You are, in essence, denying the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross. And you are nullifying the purpose of the death of Christ. You're basically saying it really wasn't necessary. Now, I mention that as an option to try to stand on your own two feet before God. I mention it as a theoretical option, but not as a recommendation. I'm not saying pick what you want, because that is exceedingly foolhardy for somebody who is not right before God to stand before Him and say, I'll do this myself. I'll deal with God one-on-one. I don't need any help from anybody else. I'll stand on my own record. That is exceedingly foolhardy thing to do. It is also insulting to God and to Christ to say, thank you so much, Christ, for what you've done, but, but let me help you out some. Let me, let me add a little bit of, of my own because I'm not sure that, that what you have done is, is sufficient for me. So one is foolhardy, one is in, the other is insulting. And the best option and really the only option is rather to cast ourselves completely on Christ and on what He has done and confess with Christians throughout all the ages, the Son of God loved me and He gave Himself for me. Can you say that today? The Son of God loved me and He gave Himself for me. Let's pray. Our God, I pray for all of us that we would be able to say that today, tomorrow, through all eternity, and in that great day when all of us have to stand before You and we're asked to give an account. And on that day, may we be able to say that the only reason that we're there and the only plea that we have is because the Son of God loved us and gave Himself for us. And we pray, O God, that this would be the way we begin the way we continue during this life that You have given us and through all eternity, trusting in Christ and Christ alone for our justification before You and for our life, our daily life. We pray that we would be able to live that life of Christ, that Christ would live in us, the life that we now live in this body, that we would be able to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. And we pray in His name. Amen.